Wow, it is good to see you this morning. Um, we've got so many out of town with uh, being the first week in a spring break and, and 19 folks in, uh, in Flint, Michigan. Um, so honestly, didn't expect to see so many faces. I'm, I'm pleased that you're here. Thank you for joining us this morning. And, uh, and, and if you're a visitor here with us, hope you'll come back. Um, we're in the middle of a, of a series uh, right now, and we're in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there, go ahead. Uh, we'll be in chapter 4 of Ephesians. Uh, we're walking through this letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus, uh, line by line, word by word. And, uh, and then we'll move on from here to the letters that he wrote to the young pastors, Timothy and Titus. Uh, this summer we'll be in his letters to the Corinthian church. Uh, we'll hit some more smaller letters in the fall, uh, Colossians and Philippians and Galatians um, as we move through the series. Uh, but what we've done today is we've just crossed over in his um, letter to the Ephesians from theology to application. Uh, we made it. Uh, for those of you who aren't necessarily uh, deep thinkers and the theology t- tends to bog you down, it's necessary, it's good, it's beautiful. It enlightens our hearts to who God is. Um, but if you're more of a practical application person, we're gonna turn that corner today. All that Paul has been teaching in three chapters of theology, he's now gonna, uh, he's gonna pull it into application in daily life. And I don't think it's by any mistake he starts first with the church in chapter four. Now, from here, he's going to move on to our individual spiritual journey. He's going to move into topics like marriage and parenting and work. And he's going to end with the very real and evident spiritual battle that we face. But today, we're going to turn the corner towards application. And we're going to start with the church, specifically the topic of unity. So what Paul has so eloquently described theologically, that our unity is rooted in the work of Jesus on the cross, that anything that you could bring up, that would, that would explain or excuse or give you some sense of justification for not being unified with someone, whether it be a difference of opinion, whether it be a different uh, skin color, whether it be a different socioeconomic background, a different culture, uh, this or that, all those things, even the offenses that were intentional have been nailed to the cross and have been killed. So that any point of division between two Christians is an attempt to resurrect things that have been killed by Jesus. So he theologically in uh, chapter two laid that out for us. Today, he's gonna move now to the local church and our application of that theology and what it means for us to be unified. Let's read, uh, let's read the first six verses of Ephesians and then we'll talk about it. Uh, Ephesians four, chapter four, verses one through six. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And that's as far as we'll make it today. I'll see you back next week. Um, uh, I'm partially serious. That is the most important thing you could hear today is God's word. And now we're going to come back and talk about it, what he's saying to us as a church as we hear it. Um, As we get ready to to talk about unity, I want to bring up just a couple of things. One of the, uh, the tensions that comes up in the idea of being a unified body is this fear of loss of identity. That on, and, 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 and here's the thing. Like, I don't hear a lot of people saying that. I'm afraid if I, get, if I become unified with the church, I'm going to lose my identity. But let's just be honest. Some of the, the quirky ways that the modern-day church plays out unity kind of freaks us out. Like, we all need to wear the same clothes, and we need to have the same weird Christian lingo, and we all need to have that little um, fish emblem on our car that has eaten Jesus or appears to have eaten Jesus and he's now died. You know what I'm talking, the igthus, like, and then those aren't in and of themselves bad things, but we give this impression that somehow to be a good Christian is we all need to look alike and talk alike. And, and so when we hear the word unity, sometimes we're kind of appalled by that or we, we're afraid that we're gonna lose ourselves somehow in this unity that God has provided. There are a couple of other things I wanna bring up and address as we go along. And, um, and one of them, I want it to be more of a word of encouragement. Um, I, I see a, a change, um, I hear, better yet, a change in the lingo um, around this church. And, and I'm gonna encourage us to pursue it. I don't know if it's intentional or if it's just a byproduct of Jesus continuing to change our hearts. Um, but, but simply in the way we use our words, like simple pronouns, like I and me. 
um, beginning to hear people catch themselves in just conversations about the church and about and exchanging the I and the me for the us and the we. And I think that that ref- it's a reflection of the heart. Like, for example, just practically speaking, if you were talking outside the church about the Flint mission trip, would you say, uh, yeah, you, I go to Solid Rock Church, um, and they've got a lot of things going on. Or would you say, I go to Solid Rock Church, and we have a lot of things going on. See how just how subtly just that, that word change can reflect the way you feel about your part in the church? When we, now, don't, don't, don't change it every time because people won't understand what you're saying. Like sometimes you need to use I, you need to use me. But in terms of when we're talking about the church and what we're doing, so instead of saying, um, yeah, you should come to our church. We have a, we, or they have a fantastic student ministry on Wednesday nights. Say, no, no, we have a fantastic student ministry on Wednesday nights. Even if you've never been to the student ministry, even if you don't know what time it starts, but that we would start using the word we in us. Now I'm seeing it happen and it encourages me to hear you catch yourself and say, no, I mean, we, like, I know we've got this going on instead of, I know you have this going on or I know they have this going on. I know we have this going on and then moving on. There's a, there's a bigger issue that, that happens in churches and it's, it's inherently true when people come together and it's true of us as well. Um, this feeling that you can sometimes get that there's an inside crowd. We tend to call it the click issue. And you've experienced it. If you haven't experienced it here, hang around a while. And, and, and if you're not connected, you'll begin to feel it. But it's true of almost any church you go to, uh, this feeling of I'm on the outside or I feel like I'm on the outside and I see people who seem to be connected, but I'm not in there. And I'm just wondering how honest we would be about our, if we've ever experienced that before. I'm gonna raise my hand. Have you ever felt that way, whether here or somewhere else? Like, I can tell there's an inside crowd. I don't know how to get in. And so then what we default to is it's clickish. okay? Now, before I jump to why or jump to the, the negative side of that, let me start with, um, I think one of the reasons we feel that way is because we want to be in the inside crowd. There's this deep longing for community, to be known in an intimate way, right, to where people know your name. Not only do they know your name, they might know some things about you, and you're getting to know some other people. I think it's a beautiful uh, place. Uh, I think it's a beautiful uh, maybe snapshot of who the church is supposed to be. But when we get two and 300 people coming together, we, we can't experience that wholesale. So then we gravitate to the smaller groups. And if we're not included, sometimes we feel like, well, it's clickish. Now, that may be true, right? But one of the problems may just be that you're not connected. And maybe the church hasn't provided a, a clear and an easy way for you to get connected. And that's the flip side of it. That's our responsibility, that we wouldn't say, well, it's all on you. We'd say, no, 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 we, we see there's an issue here and we wanna work on it. We wanna open the door wide open so that if you come to Solid Rock Church for any length of time and you find yourself not connected, it would be by your choice, not because we're not doing a good job. And so we know that's an issue. As we grow, it's gonna continue to be an issue. Now, what I want to do now is talk about how Paul, or I'm going to let Paul talk to us about what unity means for us. And then end, we're going to come back to those, those separate issues. So in verse 1, he begins, in an interesting place to me to talk about unity, he begins with saying something he's already said before. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. It's not a new statement. He's how he started chapter 3. Okay? This is not new information, but what he's about to say is new. I urge you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay? This idea of walk is not new in the letter. In, as a matter of fact, in uh, chapter 2, the first 10 verses are about this shift in our walk. The first three verses talk about how we were dead men walking without Christ, but, but Christ has made us alive. And in verse 10, it says, now, now we're walking into good works that God has prepared in advance. So there's a shift in our walk now as Christians. So he's, 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 incur- he's urging the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So we're gonna take a minute just to hone in on that word calling and what that means to us as Christians. Because I think if we don't get this, um, I think we're really gonna have a hard time with unity. Um, here's what we understand about God's nature. He is a calling God, Okay. And you can go anywhere from cover to cover in the Bible, and you're going to catch glimpses of it, sometimes implicit, just implied, and other times explicit, where you see that God is describing himself as a calling God. Now, in the Old Testament, it plays out um, in in a lot of different places. The the book of Isaiah is a place where it comes out just explicitly a lot. Uh, Matter of fact, in Isaiah 43, 
There's a beautiful example of God's nature to call. Verse one says, but, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Now, in context, he's, he's calling out Jacob and Israel, which are metaphorically, symbolically a representation of the whole Jewish nation. Those are the names that God uses in talking often about the Jewish people. Okay, and so, it's, it's, so we can't go, well, he's just talking about the Jews. That doesn't apply to me. What's being described is God has a calling nature, and we learn some beautiful things about his calling nature by the way it's described here. The first thing that, that is described here is this. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you. So that even before there is a calling, there is a creating. So that as God calls us into his family, it's more of a calling back. A calling back to what's right. A calling back to who we were created to be as opposed to getting to know God, right, for the first time. It's different. So this idea that God, before he even has called you, was involved intimately in the forming and the creating of you. It's the, it's the idea, it's beautifully displayed in the parable um, that we typically call the parable of the prodigal son, which I, I tend to call the, the parable of the loving father, because that's the point. The son who strays is not new information. That's all of us. What's different about that parable, what Jesus wants to point out, is a loving father who welcomes back that which was already his. Okay, and so there's this, that's, a, that's about God's calling nature is a calling us back to something. Um, I love the word that, that comes up next, and it's the word redeemed. Oh, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. So if you know the story of the loving father, the parable of the loving father or the prodigal son, uh, you know that whenever the son hit bottom, his expectation was to come back and get a job with dad. Not to be a son again, but just to come back and have a job. But what did dad do? He restored sonship. So we know that in God's calling nature, there is a redemptive aspect of, of welcoming back that which is already his in a redeeming way, a recreating way, a fixing kind of way, fixing what has been broken by us. He who created you, who formed you, who has redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Again, beautifully displayed in the parable of the loving father who puts a, a robe back on his son and a signet ring and, and says, welcome home, my son. And so we understand that as God, this is God's calling nature, okay? In a minute, we're gonna see it in the New Testament applied to all who believe. So we know it's not just exclusive to the nation of Israel. I wanna point out something else from two chapters forward in Isaiah uh, 45, uh, three and four, verses three and four. Again, God's calling nature. He's, he's continuing this conversation with the nation of Israel. He says, I will, this is verse three of 45. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name. Sound familiar? He's called you by name. Look at the rest of this though. Verse four, for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I called you by your name, I name you, though you don't know me. Now, here, here's what's, what I think is incredibly powerful about that. When we tend to think in terms of celebrity status or somebody who's famous, somebody who's well-known, we tend to expect that as little people, we're not known to that person. Like, even if you've had an encounter with a famous person, anybody had an encounter with what would be called a famous person? That, like, okay, yeah, so... Um, for most of us who had those encounters, we can remember it like moment by moment. Like we can remember what we were wearing. We can remember what the smell was in the air, what the temperature was like, what was spoken. We can quote it, tone of voice. We remember so much about encountering a famous person. Now flip the coin, right? If you went back to that famous person and said, remember when we met and you begin to describe the scenario to them, at most they're gonna kindly nod, Right? No, I don't remember a thing about that. Good to see you again, right? So that's how we process being known or being understood by God, that we would all know about him, but, right? But what is the word saying? Before we knew him, the famous one knew us by name. 
That's God's calling nature. Um, last week, in, um, in we point, I pointed this out, talking about spiritual warfare and the demonic forces of darkness that are still pressing up against us today, even as believers, on the attack, on the offense, Satan spinning lies, trying to derail and distract and detract and pull you away from your affections for Jesus. One of the things that we pointed out was from Acts 19, okay? Acts 19 is the story of the church in Ephesus launching And one of the stories that Luke records in Acts 19, evidently was a popular story, and I understand why by the content, was the story of the sons of Sceva. Okay, now these were Jewish boys, and they, if you read it, it says they were casting out demons, so it was kind of something they did, but at one particular time, they attempted to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, and according to, uh, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preached. That's what they say. They're trying to cast out this demon. The demon responds with something profound. Uh, the demon says, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard of, and we pointed out last week that even the demons know us by name, right? Paul I've heard of, but you jokers I've never met. Come here. And then he whoops up on them, strips them naked, and kicks them out in the street. Now, we understand why that story continues to circulate, right, among the church. So, but what we saw from that is that there is a very re- real, present, evil force against us that knows us by name. Not just zone defense on the church, but that there's an offense against us as individuals. What's beautiful now is God's word is coming back and saying, yeah, you are known by name, but not just by them. They've just heard of you. God says, I know you. Before you knew me, I knew you. I formed you. I put you together in your mother's womb. And so it's not just getting to know, right, God as, a, as this new person we've met, but it's a coming back to something that God created us for. Welcome home is the invitation that God extends. In Romans 8, Paul is talking about our calling in verses 28 through 30. I'll just read this. He says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are, what? Called, According to his purpose. He's talking now about believers in Christ. So this, this implication of being called now is, is for us. Those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we get this idea. We're being called into a, to a family orientation that we're being called into sonship and daughtership here to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Then he says... Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, it's, a, it's a fabulous few verses here, loaded with theological landmines. I love this text. Um, so much about it I don't understand. So much about it I love. So much about it that wrecks me. Um, but here's the point that I believe is being implied here. Those who have been saved have been called. Regardless of how you try to interpret or explain that, theologically, you can't get away from God has a calling nature. He calls those he's created and formed in a redemptive way back to himself. Those he's called, he also justified. And those he's justified, he will glorify with him in eternity. Now, um, when we come back to the letter to the church in Ephesus, um, Paul talks about this calling quite a bit. Um, If you go back to verses three through 14, it's gonna come up. Um, But in verse, uh, chapter one, three through 14, if you get to verse 18, I wanna point out something that's really subtle in the text and we might kind of miss if we don't stop for a second that helps us understand what our calling has to do with our unity, okay? Because that's what we're after here is unity. But Paul starts with our calling. So verse 18 of chapter one, he says this, having the eyes of your hearts, singular or plural? Plural, yeah, wasn't a trick question. It's plural, right? Unless you have more than one heart, he's talking about more than one people. He's talking in plurality. He's thinking about the believers in the church. So having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope, singular or plural? Singular, okay, okay. Now, I'm going to point it out here, and I'll show you a few other places where you can see this paradigm in the Scriptures, this relationship between singular and plural. Let me finish this verse. That you may know what is the singular hope which he has called you. Interesting, the word you here is plural again. 
Paul is very intentional on his shift from singular to plural. He wants the plurality to see we have one hope. We've been called to one hope, singular as a plural body, to which he has called you. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints? Now, this paradigm uh, relationship between singularity and plurality, uh, it starts all the way back in Genesis 1 when God's describing creating man in our image. And we begin to catch these glimpses of a Trinitarian God. And what does that mean for us that a singular God would refer to himself in plurality? Um, then you move into chapter 2 of Genesis, and there's a man and there's a woman, and they end up forsaking all others to do what? To be united as one flesh. The two become how many? One. You see this paradigm between, sing, between two singular people becoming now one flesh. And you can continue to follow this all throughout the Old Testament. When God refers to the people of Israel, he most often uses uh, symbolic or metaphoric terms to describe the plurality as one. Oftentimes calling Israel his son. and other places calling Israel his bride. Calling Israel his child. Well, we know he's talking about more than one person, right? We get into the New Testament and other words get used. Jesus himself uses the word church. Uh, he's the first one recorded in the scripture to use that word. It's, it was a secular term that described a singular body of many members. And so he calls his people, his kingdom here on earth, the church. Again, a singular word, but it implies what? More than one person, okay? Uh, the words like um, uh, koinonia is, is a Greek word uh, that comes up. A singular word that implies, though, more than one person. We're called the fellowship of Christ, uh, we're going to see it here. Paul will use this other word. It's the word for the human body. Soma, it's a Greek word. That means one human body. And he calls us, the church, one human body. See how this, this, this paradigm is all throughout the scripture. That when God thinks of his people, he thinks of us individually. He calls us individually by name. But as he thinks of us, he also thinks of us in unity as one. And so there's something about this oneness that is, that is beautiful where there's still a retention of, of, of individuality that God has created us different, different heights, different shapes, different personalities and passions. First Corinthians 12, you've been given different spiritual gifts. Not all have the same gift. So there's individuality about us. But at the same time, there's a deep singularness about who we are. All right. So as we begin to think then about what does call mean for our unity, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, you see it in the story of the loving father of the prodigal son. It's kind of subtle. But do you remember the brother's response? Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't all that great. The one who stayed home. Okay. And so we see disunity because of the father redeeming back in. But the point is that the, 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 the prodigal son had been restored to sonship, right? Back to the rightful place of sonship. And one of the brothers has, the other brother has an, has an issue with that. Here's the point. How many brothers are there? Two. How many fathers are there? One. How many fathers are calling to his people in the scriptures? One. So you begin to get this imagery of a father calling people to himself. Now, I, the, the imagery I have for this, I'm sorry, it's the only reference frame I have, but this is how I see it. I don't know if you've been around ranches. Um, it's uh, so like um, in the old days, you had to round up cattle with ropes and horses and and you had to yell at them and chase them and try to get them to get into a herd. But you don't do that anymore. Um, if you do that, you're a hobbyist. You're not actually a cattleman. Now we use bags of feed and a horn. And if you've seen it take place, it's, it's, it's like you can tell. Like little calves learn this, right, as being part of the herd. And you can switch them to another ranch. There's this universal way that you call cattle to one, cattle to one place. It's with one voice. One noise. And all the cattle come to one place. Now that's, a, like I said, that's all I have for you. Uh, but in the same way, right, the loving, the loving father calls us individually. We show up at one place. And so our calling has a lot to do with our unity because there's one voice calling us, right? Not multiple voices. God not calling, saying, hey, you come over here and sit. Whoa, 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 stay there. You come over here. But God's saying, no, no, come in, come to me. You who are tired and weary and, and burdened and, and have no hope, come to me. I will give you hope. And I'll also give you this beautiful family here called the church. 
God, God's call propels us towards unity. Now, there's a second part of our calling that I think even on a deeper level lays the foundation for our unity. And it's going to play out in verse 2 as we move forward. Um, here's what it is, and then we're going to see it. When, when we understand that in the story of the prodigal son or the loving father, that that story was about us, and really all we wanted was a job, but God called us back into sonship and daughtership, if we truly think on that, it will create a sense of humility. It will. A sense of, I don't deserve to be here. If we can begin to understand the great chasm between who we are without Christ and who we now are with Christ, there will be this deep sense of humility about being now in Christ that will propel us then to love one another and treat one another differently. And so, so much about our calling lays a foundation for our unity. Let's, let's move forward into verse two. You're gonna see it play out. So verse two says this. So verse one, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. How do we do that? An attitude of unity is laid out with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Um, if you're a person who likes to do word studies in the Bible, this is a great passage, all six verses to just go do word studies. Um, I'm gonna hit a few of them just to show you, not all of them. So in each one of these words is packed, is packed into it beautiful meaning, okay? It's hard to translate from Greek into any language, English, with one word, word for word. You most accurately do it with phrases. So let me give you some phrases to help you understand what's being communicated here and described about our attitude, understanding that we've been called now from who we were, from dead men walking to men and women who are alive now, how that lays a foundation for the right attitude with all humility. I don't, I don't think that we struggle with the idea of humility, but what's, what's actually being described here is really profound. There's two phrases I have that help us understand this word. The first one is this, the having of a humble opinion of oneself. Okay, okay, that makes sense, humility. The having of a humble opinion of oneself. Here's the, here's the, uh, the, the unique thing about humility. You can't have it unless you are. You can't have humility unless you are humble. Now, as obvious as that is, thank you, Captain Obvious, as obvious as that is, we have to start there, right? So the next phrase is this, a deep sense of one's moral littleness. Let me say it again. A deep sense of one's moral littleness. Now, when we compare ourselves to one another, we can create a scale of good and bad, and we can, we can kind of measure ourselves compared to one another, right? This, this guy is better than this guy, morally speaking. There are some things that are obvious. We see the loving, tender kindness and devotion of a mother, and we go, that's good, right? As opposed to a mother who's negligent or abusive. We can, we can scale that morally, right? One's good, one's less good when we do it horizontally. See, the issue about our calling is this. We've been called primarily into a relationship with a father who is holy, righteous, set apart, and other than. And it's this great chasm, right, between who we are morally and who he is morally and understanding that chasm has been bridged. God didn't just come in and give us a slight tune-up or overhaul to make us a little better. He took us from bad to righteous completely. Like the, the, the parable of the loving father, Complete sonship was restored, right? Not, okay, I'll, 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 let's try step sonship for a while. If you do well with that, I'll promote you. Complete. Here, here's the robe, here's the ring of a son. Complete. Now, understanding our moral littleness, right, gives way to understanding the depth of God's moral greatness. And from there, we have no option but to be humble. There is no room for pride or arrogance among human beings, from the, from the most achieved to the, the, to the worst failure. Like, think of it like this. Like, think about maybe um, athletes. Like, uh, for me, um, so Michael Jordan, who could slam from behind the free throw line, right? I mean, 
I just, I choose to believe there'll be a, never be another person who could jump and dunk like Michael Jordan. There probably will be. But as amazing and awesome as that was to jump from the free throw line to the basket, compare that to the depths of the universe. Right? Littleness. A speck in the universe. Take home run hitters. Go, go, go into the, the exploration of science and cognitive thinking and the great thinkers and scientists and philosophers trying to grasp the depths of the universe, a trickle, just a drop in the bucket of what there is to be understood. There's no room ever anywhere for human arrogance. I, I used this before. Your brain would fit in my hand, right? I could drop kick it across the room. You're going to... Claim to understand in your own strength and power the universe? Come on. So we understand, we, we agree, we have a moral littleness. God has a moral greatness. And then we begin to understand this profoundness of being invited into a relationship with him. And we have no other option but humility. Uh, the next word that comes up is gentleness, which is really just a reiteration of the first word. I won't spend time there. It's a fun one to work with. I want to move on to patience. Um, this will help us understand what patience really is and the process of becoming it. Okay? So there's the joke that's been passed around from century to century on the church. Don't pray for patience because God will, what? He'll test you and he'll give you things to be patient about. Okay. Let me give you uh, an understanding of what this word means. The word probably, I'm not going to say better translates, but equally translates enduring. Now here's the difference. When we think of patience, what we're saying is, God, make them less annoying. Is what we really mean, right? Because when we pray for patience, the people become more annoying. That's not what I wanted. I wanted them to go away. I wanted my kids to quit smacking at the table, right? I wanted this person to quit doing that. We tend to think in terms of what gets under our skin. But the word enduring doesn't imply that at all. You get this idea of longevity, working harder. Things actually could get harder before they get better. Think of it like this. I've yet to meet a marathon runner. I know there's some in here, so come tell me if I'm wrong, who says the last mile was the easiest. Unless they're slipping into some kind of like weird physiological numbness, right? They're going to say, no, the last mile was the hardest. The point of endurance is making it to the end. It doesn't get easier. So apply that to our relationships. The things that require patience of me with you aren't gonna go away. They might even get harder. The point is not that your annoyances go away, but that my endurance and long-suffering and patience with you would grow, right? I mean, you can only train so much and then you gotta get out there and just do it and keep doing it and stay after it and work harder. That's the patience that we're called to here in our unity with one another. It's gonna, it's gonna get even more vivid, I think, as we continue moving through the words. This next phrase, bearing with one another, it means to be patient with, but it's even deeper than that. It's a sense of enduring possible difficulty to lift or to suffer together. So the, the thing that I get in my mind um, is moving a piano, okay? So, so pianos weren't meant to be moved. They were meant to be played. They were not, I mean, I don't, you put wheels on them, it doesn't matter. Thing wasn't meant to be moved. And I'll, I'll help you move, but if you have a piano, let me know that up front. I might have something else going on. But here's the thing. If you and I agree that we're gonna go help so-and-so move a piano, we already know that difficulty's on the way, right? And the fact that we're both headed there is some level of commitment that, well, I'm gonna help you do this and we're gonna see it through. Right? So the idea of lifting together is this bearing with one another in love so that like, okay, here's the thing. I don't want to move this piano. I don't want to move it either. But we, it has to be moved. So you get on that end. I'll get on this end. You lift, I lift until it's done. That's the imagery that we're called to in bearing with one another in patience. The difficulties are out there in front of us, folks. Unity is not this absence of hardship or not getting along. It's our commitment to work through it. To understand when something comes up, something is misspoken, something's missaid, a tone of voice, an email, a text, a situation, a scenario, and all of a sudden there's disunity, right, that you and I would see that as a piano and say, I don't like moving pianos. But here's the thing. You lift, I'll lift. God has called us to walk through this together, enduring to the end until this job is done. Right? 
to lift to one another, to suffer, to know that obstacles are coming. Not this easy out. Well, I didn't like what so-and-so said. I'm just, you know what? I'm gonna go find another church. I mean, go there, you're gonna get offended there too. The offenses are gonna happen. It's how we deal with them and walk through them together that the word is calling us to here. Now, look at what he says next. To bear with one another in love. This is, in the original language, agape. There are different versions of different ways love is described in the scripture. This is the way that God's love is described. Matter of fact, this word is unique to biblical documents and letters from the church. It was, it was a foreign word or concept outside of the Christian church. Agape love is God's one-way love to us. And so we talked about this a few weeks. The same way that God pours grace on us and in us, he expects it to flow through us. The same here is true of our love for one another, that the way that the Father loves me, I'm to love you. And if you begin to see in me that I'm struggling to love you the right way, there's probably a breakdown in my, I have lost sight of or my understanding of the Father loving me. And so I need to step back for just a minute. The way I treated you wasn't right. We need to come back and move that piano, but hang on just a second. I think I've lost some kind of insight or I've lost disconnect with the Father's love. Let me be reminded, Matthew 18, of how you have bridged this chasm and forgiven my debt so much more than he or she owes me right now. Okay, now I'm ready to go. I'm to love you the way God loves me, not the way we naturally love one another as humans where we barter and trade and this for that. If you do this, I'll do that, but God's one-way love. Now, moving on in verse three, he says all this to say this. Here's, here's my kind of, the, if you will, here's the, uh, the center of what Paul is saying. Be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The foundation has been laid. You have one calling, one father has called you together. When you understand the chasm of your moral littleness and his moral greatness, you will be humbled. When you understand that patience with one another is enduring and long-suffering, it's a lot like lifting pianos. When you understand all that, to understand this, you then, here's what, I'm, what it means to, be, to, to live or to walk according in a manner worthy of your calling. Be eager to maintain this unity. Now, the word maintain is, I believe, um, put there on purpose, and it helps me so much. We don't come up with our unity. Unity is not creating better ways to get along. It's the idea of maintaining it. The hard thing is here, the word means more than just managing. So we think of maintaining, we think of maintaining the lawn. Takes a little bit of work, right? We just gotta give it a little bit of tension. Need some fertilizer, need to mow it, maintain it. it all, but this word also means to protect. So it's like being a good steward of your lawn, but then shooting anybody who, who chooses to drive on it. That's the, that's the word here. So that's more than just us high-fiving each other and hugging and saying, oh, it's so good to see you. Oh, how are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. It's more than that. It's being protective, defensive of the unity, that you would recognize any attempt to be disunified is, is really a plan of the enemy to separate us, and we were defensive against that. Not defensive against one another, defensive against the issues that might come up that would divide us. There'd be a sense of protection that goes along with maintaining here. eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let's work through these next few verses and then I'm gonna come back and we're gonna talk about some practical things here at Solid Rock. There is one body, verse four, one body. That's the word soma. It's a human body, that's what the word means. There's one body. There's only one of you. I know there are a lot of you, but there's only one of you. There's one body. There's one spirit, there's one hope. Verse five, one Lord. It's this beautiful idea of lordship and submission so that when you and I have an issue with one another, we have a higher authority that we can go to to submit to. When we're struggling with something, I've been offended by you. I go to a higher authority. I go to God's word and it instructs me on how to carry it out and go about it. I have a lordship in Jesus that, is, that has more influence on my life than your offense towards me. I'm gonna to submit to him and I'm gonna to strive to make things right with you. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now I'm gonna stop here. It's not more important than the other words, but this illustrates for me something beautiful about our unity. So, um, so let me say this about baptism. Um, 
regardless of uh, what Christian church you were baptized in or at, whether you're baptized in a swimming pool, a river, a lake, or a baptismal inside of a building, okay, if it was truly a Christian baptism, there was something uniquely symmetrical about all of our baptisms for those who have been baptized in Christ. There should be, right? There should be. Regardless of what was said, did you share your testimony? Did somebody say some nice things about you? There was something being professed about what you believe to be true. Jesus said, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So regardless of what else is said, here at Solid Rock, we make sure we say that, right? My prayer was to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's something symmetrical about our baptisms, even though they're unique and individual, right? Different places, locations, inside, outside, big church, little church, country church, city church. There's something symmetrical and same about our baptism. Um, it's why here at Solid Rock, we go back to the baptism of Jesus as our, as our kind of our blueprint for how to do it. And we, we do immersion, dunking here. And that's not just the Greek study on the words. It's also the example we see. And so, so there's just something beautiful. Even though we don't go to the Jordan River to be baptized, you're baptized here in a baptismal. There's something sameness. There's a sameness about how Jesus was baptized and you were baptized. Something about it's the same. Um, this, uh, this past week, I had the honor and privilege of um, doing a, uh, a funeral for a man who served in the armed forces, but we did it at a uh, military cemetery. Just give you a short version of the, the story. Um, there's, I wrote a blog on our website, a longer version of the story. I just want to share a little bit of it. Um, so I'd never done a, a, a funeral at a military cemetery. I've done military funerals, but not at the military cemetery. And I've seen pictures of military cemeteries. It was probably, I think, the first time I've ever driven on one. I know it's the first time I do a funeral at one. So something struck me as I'm pulling into this cemetery, how incredibly pristine and organized and symmetrical the cemetery was. And as I was, at first I was impressed, like, wow, this looks this is beautiful. Just the one over there by DBU right there on the lake, just beautiful. Lawns are all mowed. All the grass is the same height. All the trees are trimmed the same way. The tombstones are placed with remarkable accuracy. There was a survey crew with the GPS system and everything digitally making sure each stone was perfectly in place. So when you look down a row, it was straight. If you look this way, they were diagonally straight. It was, it was beautiful. But then as I drove past headstone after headstone, I was, I was, at first I was, I was struck by a little bit of a sense of, of remorse and disrespect that it was hard to pick out individuals. So I was reading names and even the font size, even though the names were different, the dates were different, it, it was just, it looked like almost this cookie cutter of, of tombstones. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. And at first I thought, this is disrespectful. Who are these people? Where are the stories at? Where's, where's the uniqueness and the individuality about it? So we spun around the cemetery, the place where we were doing our service, and the military did their part first. I learned so much about myself, about the military, and about our unity from this experience. So the military does their part at the front. And I looked this up online when I got, when I got home, but, but it doesn't matter where you go or what branch of the armed forces you're in, there's something uniquely symmetrical about the way they do it. From the saluting and the, the order that it goes, the unfolding of the flag, the playing of taps, the folding of the flag back, brought to the family member in honor of who's deceased, and the, even the words that are spoken are prescribed, the exact wording handed. And so as I was watching this, um, the thrust of what was expressed was gratitude for, for living on the mission of the United States military. And then it, and it struck me, I, I realized something. As I got up to preach my part, which was talking about the individuality, the individual story, the, the characteristics and the personality, this is a very real individual person who had surrendered themselves to a mission bigger than themselves. That's what the, the symmetry in the cemetery was doing. It was showing that, yes, there were individual lives here, unique personalities, husbands, mothers, old, young, tall, short. Some died in battle, some did not. But there was something remarkably same about all of them. They had all surrendered their lives to one mission. It didn't matter where they died or what branch they were in, right? It was, it was beautifully displayed in the symmetry of the cemetery. As I drove back from Dallas to Fort Worth, I thought about you and I and this beautiful mission that we've been called to, that you and I are like living tombstones. There is a sameness about us. 
And it's not supposed to be played out in the same style of clothing or the same lingo or the right bumper sticker or the right you know, fish on your car. And all the, it's supposed to be played out in our common mission. You and I are on the same mission. We don't, right? We don't have missionaries who are on a mission in Flint. We are on mission in, in Flint right now. We have boots on the ground in Flint, Michigan this morning. It's our mission. Right? So when you go to Target this week, or you go to Home Depot, or you go into Starbucks, you're on that same mission that they're on. We have one mission. That's our sameness. We look different. Thank God. Thank God for you. I mean, because I'm not the best. I'm kind of an ugly guy. I'm so thankful that we have pretty guys here. Right? I'm not a, when my wife's out of town, I don't dress well. I have to wear something by default. She's laid out for me before, so it's safe to wear it. I mean, don't try to be like me. That's not going to be good for you. The point isn't that we would try to look alike or mimic one another, become these mindless robots, puppets on a string, but that we would surrender ourselves to the same mission. All right. Um, So here's some things that we know are true here at Solid Rock. We've, We've done some some surveying, if you will. And what I mean by that is in our minds, climbing up to the top of the mountain, looking backwards as an elder body, as a staff, leadership team over the last five years and just doing some inventory. And what we've noticed are uh, people have been saved. People have grown and matured in Christ. People have connected to the community here at Solid Rock. The church is growing, not just numerically, but spiritually. We look at all that and we say, praise God, we are making disciples of the nation. That's our mission. But you know what the problem is? We don't even know how we got here. True statement. Now we can go to each individual story and we can track it. So-and-so, how did he or she get to where they are? Well, remember, they were invited by so-and-so, and and then so-and-so met them whenever they served at the food bank, and then they got invited to a life group, and then they got involved in the Bible study, then they got asked to serve on this team, and you can track it individually, but wholesale, you can't tell. And so what we're doing right now is we're taking a step back going, we've been called to a singular mission, and here's our our goal that we want you to hear before we unveil it later this year, is this, that you would know the mission with clarity, So that if you're here today and you don't have a student in student ministry, if anybody came up to you and said, hey, do y'all have have anything for high school students? You wouldn't send them somewhere else, but you would be able to answer that question and say, yes, we do. We have a student ministry that meets on Wednesday nights at this time. You should come. Do you guys, uh, do y'all do any kind of mission work? Yes, we do. Come with me to the mission wall. (laughs) That's this hallway wall right down here. Let me show you the mission we're on. As opposed to saying, I don't know. I mean, I think they do. So, yeah, they do something on Wednesday nights. Say, no, no, we do. And, and, and so like, it's not that you would know every detail about that ministry, but that you would be able to say, yeah, we do. We do these things. Well, what about a membership class? Do y'all do membership? Yes, we do. Here's how we do membership at Solid Rock. Well, do y'all do this? Yes, we do. Here's how we do this. Um, Billy described it beautifully when we were one of our elders. We were talking about unity and what we hope to achieve this year. And he said, we'll know that we're there when our mission becomes the thing that is humming as people pass each other in our hallways. The hum that you hear as our members pass one another in the hallways, when that, right, is the mission that we're on, we're there. That you and I would just, we would know it. We're on mission together. We're gonna revamp the Membership Connect class once we finish this process so that every member knows this is the mission we're on, clearly. Um, And we know this, we know that um, unity, I I believe this anyway, unity begins with with elders and trickles down. (laughs) Um, Just some insight into that. as an elder body in our, in our governing documents, we have legal statements that talk about majority vote, two-thirds vote, all those kinds of things that you might be familiar with, with parliamentary procedure. But can I tell you this? Functionally, we don't operate that way. We operate on a 100% unanimous consensus or nothing in every decision and have been for the last five and three-quarter years. Every decision, every staff member that's been hired, every decision that we've made, and regarding the church and 
All those things, every decision. Now, we could do a three-fourths majority vote, right? And that might imply that the three are right and the one is wrong, but not always. I can tell you story after story where one of the elders is like, ah, this is not sitting well with me. And we ended up that the one was right and the three were wrong. See, we don't go with majority vote. It's all or nothing with us. Why? Because we are eager to maintain the unity and to protect it. And we know that if division sets in with us, it's gonna trickle down. It's gonna trickle down. And the members will be divided as well. So this idea that, that Paul is laying out here for us is, is theological, but it's very practical. We want to be a church on mission. We want every member to know what it is, to know their part. For every person who visits our church, we want there to be a clear open door on how to get connected, okay? And if at the end of the day, a person isn't, it's by choice, right? It's by choice. And we know we've got a lot of work uh, to get there, but it's not just befriending people as they walk in the door and shaking hands. That's helpful, but that doesn't create community. We need, we need to be a people who are clear that, that the most intimate expression of the church is found in small, intimate groups of community. Four, five, six, eight, 12. Once you get beyond 12, it starts to feel big and it's not small anymore, right? And we wanna give every person here a place in the community. All right, let me end here with these two statements and I'm gonna pray for us. The mission of Jesus supersedes personal agenda. The mission of Jesus supersedes our individual personal agendas. The devoted Christ follower should ask, God, how can I change my agenda to support your agenda? That's what those people who were buried in that cemetery had done. They said, you know what? I'm checking my agenda and I'm gonna to surrender to a bigger mission. It's the same as is true of Christians. If you're gonna come after him, he's asked, he said that you would take up your cross daily, deny yourself and follow him. That's the invitation to join the mission. And that means we're checking our personal agendas for the bigger agenda of God. Now I'm gonna pray for us. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, um, I, I hope that the conversation was helpful for you to give you a more clear picture of who we're supposed to be. I hope I didn't set you up for a failure by making you think that we're there yet. Okay, this is the journey we're on as a church. We're praying, God, continue to mold me into the image of Jesus, continue to mold us into the image of Jesus, make us better at what you've told us to do. So I wanna be honest about that. We aren't perfectly unified, um, but here's the thing. We have committed to one another to lift, to be patient, to endure with one another, to go, go the long haul, not to give up when things go, get hard. We want you to know that if you become a Christian today, you're invited into that community, whether you have a small group or not. That at the cross, you are unified in relationship with God, but you're also unified in relationship with his followers. It's a two-part deal. You don't really get to pick and choose. You get him, you get us, I know. <laughs> but something beautiful about that. I'm gonna pray for us now, and if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm gonna pray for you, and I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up.